We come tonight to our next section in the lesson as we look through this appeal to the church. The appeal is Richard Aline gives to his congregation, the appeal to the church that they would walk in the ways of the Lord. As he's being called away, you know, from his church and the great ejection. He comes to this section of application, and as I said last time, the first words that this pastor has to the congregation that he preaches is a word to the ungodly. It's important that we recognize that the just because we come to church and we're all members and we're all faithful doesn't mean we're all truly saved. It's always been the case. Israel's history testifies to it. And the Lord makes clear in the Gospels. And the New Testament reveals it just as well. There's always weeds among the wheat. Chaff. There's always tares. There's never a church on earth that is perfect. Right? That church will be in heaven when we're all gathered together and all sin is done away with. So it's right and appropriate to be appealing to those who don't know the Lord, even amongst the congregation. As we come through this sermon, this pastor has two words for the ungodly. We'll look at the one tonight, we'll look at the other one next week, Lord willing, and then the rest of the treatise, the rest of the sermon, is to the saints, exhorting them, encouraging them, directing them, instructing them. Wonderful, wonderful counselor, a wonderful counsel. But then the two words he has for the ungodly are divided up this way. He speaks first to those who are far from the kingdom of God. And then secondly, to those who are near to the kingdom of God. We might describe it this way. He speaks first to those who are one step from the doors of hell. And then he speaks secondly to those who are yet a step from the doors of heaven. Those who are utterly lost and those who are almost Christians. It's two good words, very moving words. And I thought about a couple of passages that I didn't put in the notes. I want to set before us one we looked at already in the past. Look at turn to Ezekiel 18 and then Luke 12. These are the two passages that came to my mind this afternoon as I was reviewing. To think about tonight's lesson, in some respects, it's what we find in Ezekiel 18, and then it's what we'll find in Luke chapter 12. In Ezekiel 18, beginning in verse 30, we read this passage again a couple of weeks ago. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. And then Luke 12. Turn to Luke 12. Beginning in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, 
take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Notice, it's a barn. It stores grain and goods, things you can eat. And yet notice what he says, and then I will say to my soul, as if the soul can feed on grain and goods. That's the foolishness of this man. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Richard's words to the ungodly who are still far from the kingdom is very simple. Wake up. Wake up, you are on the brink of ruin. Wake up before it's too late. Three things he introduces right away. First of all, turn to 2 Corinthians 4. He points out that the darkness that blinds such a man is a darkness from hell that will lead him to hell if it is not lifted. This is no small darkness. That darkness which blinds us from the truth of God, that darkness which blinds us from the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is no small darkness. The point is this. That darkness that keeps you from the kingdom of God is no small darkness. It is a, it is a satanic darkness that will be your eternal ruin if it is not lifted by the grace of God. So 2 Corinthians 4 Verses 3 and 4. I'll begin in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, Paul says we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case... The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The only way any of us sees is because by the grace of God, the light of the gospel has shone into our darkened hearts. This is what needs to happen to any and all of us. But the darkness that covers us, the darkness that blinds us, is an evil darkness. And the only rescue from it is a rescue from God or by God. So if we're far from the kingdom of God, we need to cry to God that he would lift that darkness, that he would shine the light into our hearts. But it's not just the darkness that blinds them from seeing the light. It's also that hardness of heart. Turn to Romans 1. There's a hardness of heart upon those who are far from the kingdom of God. But this hardness is no small hardness. It is a hardness that has come upon their heart, a hardness that will weigh them down to perdition, to hell, if it is not softened by the gospel. This is a hardness that kills, that destroys that ruins. Look at it here in verse 21. 
of Romans chapter 1, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God, the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What happens when we choose a course of sin? If we continue to choose a course of sin, it may be that in the judgment of God, He will give us up to that course. He will let us run that race to the end. And that's exactly what happens here. God gives them up. They're so bent on sin that God gives them up to their sin to enjoy not only its temporal pleasures, but its eternal wages. Turn to verse 28. For this reason, Paul goes on, For this reason, God gave them up. This is mentioned three times. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. There it is again to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Notice, it was a, it was a leaning toward before, a, a choosing before. Now it's a filling with. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Just hear the Ten Commandments here. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, Maliciousness, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is a downward spiral into eternal damnation that begins with suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, the refusal to acknowledge God, the refusal to worship God, it begins with, as we've learned in our, in our catechism, it begins with idolatry. On the one hand, choosing idols for oneself, and on the other hand, choosing to worship God in a way that He has not prescribed. Idolatry. And it ends in this downward spiral all the way to perdition. That's the kind of hardness of heart that has come upon these who choose to continue far from the kingdom of God. Turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Paul again describes those who are far from the kingdom of God. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Notice how these two things come together. The darkness and the hardness come together wrapped around ignorance. Which is not an excusable ignorance. It's a willful ignorance. It's the ignorance of Romans 1. Though they knew God, they refused to acknowledge Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their imaginations and therefore became darkened in sin. 
So there's a darkness that comes upon those who stay far from the kingdom of God. There's a hardness of heart that comes upon them. And thirdly, of course, an impenitence. The refusal to turn. Go back to Ezekiel 18. The refusal to turn. And the Lord cries out through the gospel, Why will you not turn? Turn and live. Life comes upon turning. What comes upon not turning? Sudden death. Sure death. This impenitence, and if they continue in it, it'll shut them out of the kingdom of God forever. If they die in their present condition, turn to Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48, verse 22. We've seen this already in the earlier part of this study. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. The choice of a life of sin, the choice of a life far from the kingdom of God, will not, cannot, in any way lead to what that person seeks. Remember Psalm 4, verse 4? Who will show us some good? Seeking only what God can give in the creation and never finding it. It's impossible that it can be found there. There is no peace for the wicked. The ungodly, who are still far from the kingdom of God, need to wake up. There is a darkness of the devil that has overcome them. There is a hardness of heart and then an impenitence that if they continue in, in that, and die in that condition, they perish forever. It's at this point that Pastor Richard appeals one last time. Again, the rest of the sermon, besides the next section, the rest of the sermon is to the godly. One final time. And as I went back and looked in the course of this last week upon the question of a few of you, this was the last time Richard ever preached to this congregation. These sorts of people, this group of people, if you will, that sat under his ministry for 20 years that he served in this church in Batcombe, they never had another appeal from their pastor. And given the men that came into the pulpit after he left, who knows what they heard. This may have been the very last opportunity they had and the very last appeal passionate appeal to their souls to repent. Don't stay far from the kingdom of God a single moment more. Come and be saved. And so in hopes, he says, in hopes that you are, that though you are so near the brink of hell, that you may yet be one step short of it. Let me speak to your conscience, but once more. And he makes this appeal. And I just want to put it before you. Let your conscience receive it. Let it weigh upon you. And let it be the occasion, if not for your own salvation, as I trust you already know the Lord, let it be the reason why you fervently and all the more fervently and earnestly plead for the salvation of those in your family and among your friends who are still far from the kingdom of God. Because unless they turn, they will perish. And this is his appeal. Is your life a life that pleases God or is it not? Did God ever promise you that a life of sin would enjoy his peace and grace and love? Can you honestly deny that the life you live is the life of an enemy of God? When you look back over your life and you trace the steps you've trod and the way you've lived, can you not see the stamp of the devil on all of it? Do you need any more proof that you're far from God and only a step from hell? 
And do you intend to stay at this great distance from God until you die? Is there nothing in the word of God and in the promises of God that you wish was yours? Is there so little in the gospel that you're content to forfeit it for the pleasures of sin? Are you content that nothing should prosper with you because nothing can in a life of sin, and that all should be a curse to you, because all things must in a life of sin. Are you content that a hell of devils should be your eternal sanctuary, and that the wrath of God should be your eternal portion? Are you willing to die for your sins and suffer their wages forever? Are you content to say, let God damn my soul tomorrow, as long as as I can have my sins today. I'll take my part among the damned in hell, as long as I can enjoy my part with the damned on earth. Because that's the voice of every willful refuser of the gospel of Christ. Does your heart not tremble to think of it? Does your hair not stand on end to behold it? Do your knees not shake in terror to consider what you have done and are still doing as long as you continue to refuse Christ? God has set a day that will be your last. What if this is it? God has appointed a Sabbath that will be your last. What if this is it? God has appointed your last sermon. What if this is it? God has appointed your last warning. What if this is it? Are you willing to die as you are? What if the Lord took today's denial and refusal as your final answer and never, ever invited you again to come to Jesus? Are you good with that? If your heart's been awakened, and as he preaches this sermon, he hopes it is, If your heart has been awakened and it cries out with the Jerusalem sinners, what must I do to be saved? Then see that you take heed to this counsel without delay. And he gives them seven steps, seven things that are of vital concern. And he begins with number one, get a deep sense of your dreadful state. As a sinner outside of Christ, you are in the bond of iniquity. You are a captive to the devil. You are a slave of sin. You're still under the covenant of works, which curses you with the eternal wrath of God for your sins. Unless you repent, your very next step may be in hell. Today you walk in sin. Tomorrow you may lie down in fire and brimstone. Today you drink sin's pleasures. Tomorrow you may drink the cup of God's wrath. Is this the state you've been so unwilling to get out of? Is this the state you've been boasting about? Is this the state that you've been willing to lose heaven for? Look at your condition and tremble. Because there's no hope of repentance unless you first see where you are and tremble at it. Your fool's paradise is your soul's prison. Open your eyes and see what you are, where you are, and where you're headed if you don't get into Christ. Secondly, give a bill of divorce to every sin. If you love your life, don't say to a single sin, nothing but death will part you and me. Because to die with that sin is to suffer its curse. 
Don't say to a single sin, yet a little while and then I'll let you go. Because you don't know whether this while might be your last. Don't see the grace of God in Christ for sinners as a license to continue in sin. Break off from all your companions in sin. Christ and your soul can never be married until your soul and sinners are divorced. There's no hope that the cords of sin can be broken until the knots of evil companions be cut. Don't ignore your conscience anymore. Your conscience is the only friend that God or your soul has left within you. Your will and your affections and your understanding are all gone. The devil has stolen them away and hired them all against you. You have nothing left but your conscience. If you abuse it anymore, it may never speak again until it speaks unbearably in hell forever against you. Don't let the greatness of your sins or the difficulty of Christ's terms hinder or discourage you from making a present match with Christ. Don't say his yoke and cross are too grievous for you to bear. And don't say your sins are too many for him to bear. Answer his yoke with his throne. Answer his cross with his crown. Answer your sins with his infinite merit and mercy and go immediately to Jesus. If he'll give his life to you to save you, don't be afraid that he gives his laws to you for you to live by. Go to Jesus and take with you these promises. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Give yourself to the duty of a disciple of Christ, and keep close to the ordinances appointed by God for his worship. Give yourself daily to private and family prayer. Give yourself daily to Bible reading and catechizing. Prize, improve upon, and sanctify the Sabbaths. The Lord on those days comes down upon his mount to meet your soul, to commune with you, to bless you, to feed you, and to fill you with whatever your soul desires or needs. Get yourself to worship, to meet your God. But remember when you go to leave all your stuff behind. And take an account of yourself often. Observe your duties. What are they coming to? What kind of change are they producing in you? Are your sins and your soul divorced? Have your companions in sin been abandoned? Are Christ and your soul united and living together in daily communion? Beware that you're never satisfied with praying and hearing instead of believing and repenting. Remember these seven directions and give yourself to them and you can be sure that the God of peace will be with you, be with you because that's the promise with which the sermon began in Philippians 4 and 9. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What an amazing appeal. What a powerful appeal to the conscience. An appeal to the ungodly, the wicked, the vile, the hard-hearted, the impenitent, the darkened, that are far from the kingdom of God. And yet it is even those... <laughs> that Christ calls to be saved. It is even those that Christ will bring in to be redeemed. We don't bring ourselves part of the way here and then Christ finishes it. Christ goes all the way out where we are in all our mess and all our muck and he brings us to himself. And how does he do it? He does it by the powerful preaching of the gospel, the gospel going forth 
and putting a hook in the mouth of a sinner and bringing him in. The net that is cast, you remember, and gathering the fish and bringing them to the boat to shore. This is what the gospel does. This is what Christ does. And what an encouraging and emboldening appeal that no matter where you are, how dark, how hard, how impenitent, you can still come. Christ still calls you. Remember Paul said this, that as the chief of sinners, God saved him to remove all objections that anyone could ever make that they cannot be saved because they're so sinful. Paul said, I was the chief. And God saved me as a testimony to the greatness of his grace. And go back to the Old Testament and find Manasseh redeemed. Go back to the New Testament and find Mary Magdalene and Saul of Tarsus redeemed. It doesn't get any worse. Scripturally speaking, these are the worst. And God saved them. God redeemed them. The gospel is sufficient. Even they can find a refuge in the heart of Christ. By what means? By working harder than anyone else? By the same means, turn and live. Hear the gospel and come. Of a man's self, he can't hear. He's hard-hearted, he's dark, and he's impenitent. There's no coming, there's no hearing, there's no opening of our own eyes, there's no giving ourselves a new heart. Even when, as we read in Ezekiel, where the Lord says, go get yourself a new heart, turn. God tells us to do what he knows we can't do in order that we'll appeal to him to do it for us. He didn't come to save the righteous, but sinners. He came to call sinners to repentance, and that's what he does. And he tells us, go get a new heart. When we realize that what we need is a whole new heart, we need to be born again, and we can't do that to ourselves, that's when we begin to see, as we heard this morning, that's when we begin to see our true emptiness. We know something right about ourselves, but that's when we truly go to God and say, Lord, I can't do what needs to be done. I can't come. I can't see. I can't lift the darkness. I can't change the heart. I can't soften my own heart. I can't break away from my own impenitence. But you can do it. You promised to do it. You said if I ask, you will do it. And that's the testimony of the work of grace. And the chief of sinners can make that appeal to God and appeal to his own promises and watch him work wonders. That's how anybody, any one of us gets saved. So I pray this appeal just really pokes at your heart tonight and encourages you how faithful and good God is and how we need to fervently pray and can fervently pray for anyone because no one, as long as they're breathing, no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. And let's be bold in the sharing of the gospel. Let's be bold to speak of Christ because you have no idea whether that small word, you can barely get out because you're so nervous, whether that small word will be the word that saves their soul. That will be the word that God uses to awaken that sinner to new life. So let's be bold. Let's be encouraged that we serve a God who saves sinners. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we appeal to you, the Most High God. We appeal to the years of the right hand of Almighty God. O Lord, we have seen your works, and we rejoice that you are the Savior of sinners. You are the great Redeemer. You are the one whose right arm is an arm of salvation. You are the one who works salvation for yourself, because there is no man who can do it. But you have come in in your own Son to work it on our behalf, and we thank you for that. We praise you, O God, for being so gracious and so kind as to save us sinners. But Father, we appeal to you tonight. 
We appeal to you for those whom we love, O Lord, our beloved lost loved ones. O God, we ask that you'd be gracious. You would call them to yourself. We pray that you would use us as witnesses and let us be bold in the workplace and in our families and in the gatherings of friends. Let us be bold to speak of Christ, to share the truth, to point to the gospel, to tell of our Savior's love. And we pray that we may be an instrument in your hand for the salvation of these whom we love that are yet far from the kingdom of God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.